From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am your co-host Evan Ratliff, joined here by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of longform.org. Hello, gentlemen. One of my favorite moments of the week. Good day to you both. Good day to you both. Evan, who is on the uh, the program this week? Uh, this week, I was pretty excited to talk to Katie Engelhart, who is a reporter. She's a writer. She used to work for Vice News, and she used to work for NBC doing video stuff on camera and behind the camera. Um, but she also wrote what I thought was one of the best stories about the pandemic last year for California Sunday Magazine about the nursing home, which was one of the original epicenters of the outbreak. And I really wanted to talk to her about that story. And she also has a book coming out called The Inevitable Dispatches on the Right to Die, uh, which is a really beautiful and challenging book. It's all about assisted death. And people should know that obviously we discuss it at length. So there's a lot of talk about um, assisted suicide, how people die, people making those decisions. And she's just very thoughtful about it, not just about the topic, but also about how you go about reporting on something like that uh, and your relationship with your sources. So it was a really great conversation. And I, I really enjoyed talking to her. That Cal Sunday piece is called uh, What Happened in Room 10. If you have not read it yet, it really is something you should make time for. It was on our uh, best of the year list and um it was incredible go read that story after you read that story start an email newsletter with mailchimp they make it easy they're our sponsor they make this show possible i'm sure there's some project you're doing that needs an email newsletter do it today thanks to mailchimp and now here's evan with katie engelhart Katie, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. I'm a huge admirer of your work. And in particular, you did these two stories for California Sunday that really resonated with me over the last couple of years. But I wanted to start with your book, which is about to come out. It's coming out in a few weeks from coming now. Coming out on March 2nd. It is available for pre-order. <laughs> <laughs> if you could like vocally say the link, please go to... Uh, <laughs> HTTP. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's called The Inevitable. And mm -hmm. I've read it this week. So I'm kind of like swimming in it. Like my mind is still a bit lost in some of the concepts. Not lost in a bad way, but it felt like one of these 
books where I just sometimes I had to just pause and I was like kind of rubbing my head and saying like mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. So I want to somehow try to capture that feeling and get you to talk about it. But maybe you could give a little bit of a capsule of what the book is about. I mean, the book is about end of life and it's about assisted death, I guess is one mm-hmm. term for it. But how would you describe the book? So this book started with an assignment. I was working as um, as a reporter with Vice News based in London and the British government was debating whether or not to pass a physician-assisted death law. And I was asked to look into it. And, you know, I was interested in the issue, but to me, the story was pretty predictable. You had, you know, people arguing on the one side that this was a really important thing for patient autonomy and would help people expand their end-of-life options. And you had people on the other side talking about a slippery slope and soon we'll slide our way into, you know, forced death and, you know, mass suicide for the elderly. And, you know, so I covered the story, but through that process, I learned that there was just a whole lot of conversation and activity happening kind of away from doctor's offices, legislative offices, polite conversation. There were people all over the world who were planning the ends of their lives in very organized ways, which really surprised me. I don't think it should have in retrospect, you know, To kind of describe this, I I often bring up the example, though I'm loath to make any parallel with abortion, I I bring up the example of the Jane Collective, which we know provided safe abortion access to many women before Roe v. Wade. Well, there are similar groups that function in the end-of-life space. And, you know, I just kind of went down this this rabbit hole that, that eventually, you know, extended five years. And so in part, the book is about these organized groups, what what some people refer to as the euthanasia underground. But really, I think it's about the idea of suicide. It's about the idea of dignity at the end of life. It's about how people are making choices for themselves, kind of alone and without guidance. Um, it's, as you say, it's a bit of a hard book to summarize, which is maybe what every author says about their work. It's, it's too hard <laughs> for me to capture in a sentence. No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you on, on this one. So the Vice piece that you were doing originally, that was a video piece or a documentary mm-hmm. piece. And then did it evolve that you just sort of kept paying attention to the topic? Or did you actually sort of start gathering sources and people at that time Mm -hmm. that you then kept going with over years? Both. I worked on this story with a couple of colleagues at Vice for a few years, but I left the company in 2017 and I continued with the work on my own. Some of the people I'd met, you know, back then, and, and that was really great because, you know, I followed some of the characters in my book for five years, four or five years and others I found later. I moved to the US in 2017, and it was impressed upon me by my publishers that Americans like to read about Americans, and and I must find some American (laughs) characters, um, which wasn't very hard anyway. But, um, you know, so the book is sort of half set in the US and half in Canada and Europe. And at what point in that process did you, was it, you had a publisher and it was going to be a book? Did you do that from just after the Vice assignment or, or did that come later? I sold the book shortly after I moved in 2017. It was sort of a long process finding a home for it. I found a, a great home for it at St. Martin's Press, which is part of Macmillan, but it wasn't, I think, an obvious yes for a lot of publishers. I actually, I found that a lot of people wanted to meet me to talk about it, 
And my suspicion was they also wanted to see, you know, who is this person? Is this like a Morticia Adams who's going to write a really, you know, gruesome book about about death and suicide? And, you know, inevitably I'd get some explanation of, of why they just didn't think people would be interested. And I I felt they were wrong and my agents felt they were wrong and, and my publishers too. So, you know, we kept going with it. But I feel like it surfaces a little in the book, and I could absolutely see this being true, that you had some cause to believe they were wrong because this seems like the kind of thing that when you tell people you're working on it or it comes up in a group of mm-hmm. people somewhere, that everyone kind of wants to talk about it, that like mm-hmm. people have experiences with it, family members, or they've thought about it, or mm-hmm. it's something mm-hmm. that doesn't get talked about, and then they kind of quietly want to talk about it and hear about it. Yeah, it was this wild experience where sort of everywhere I went for five years, if I mentioned the book, someone would bring me aside and just confess the most intimate things. You know, even even some of the editors who turned down the book, they would say, you know, it was nice to meet you. Oh, before you go, you know, I had this friend and he had cancer and he talked to his doctor and wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, everyone kind of had a story like this. And if they didn't have a story like this, they were thinking about it either for themselves or for their family members. I had a lot of people say to me, you know, and I think in in a tone that is sort of jokey, but sort of not that, you know, oh, I've promised my parents if they get Alzheimer's, I'll help them die. Mm -hmm. I don't really know whether people mean it or whether they're just scared and it's something they say. And if they do mean it, I doubt they've thought through exactly what that would entail. You know, who do you get the drugs from? (laughs) Yeah. What's your method? How does it work? What do you risk? What does your family member risk? So some of the characters in my book were kind of making those sorts of decisions. And you said when you moved to the U.S., you you needed to find some U.S. characters. And you said they weren't hard to find, but it actually, I was very interested in how you went about finding them. Because as you say, you followed them for a long time. And Mm -hmm. you have this situation where you have people who are maybe thinking about doing this for a variety of reasons. and how do you choose which ones to sort of stick with and see what happens and follow that process? Yeah, I shouldn't say they were easy to find. I I just meant that there are people in the United States, just as in Europe or anywhere else, who are making these choices and making these plans. Um, I knew I wanted to cover a range, and I knew that I didn't want much of the book to be focused on the politics of medical aid and dying legislation. So... The first chapter of my book does talk about legal assisted death. Aid and dying is legal in a number of American states and has been in in places like Oregon for decades now. So chapter one of my book opens with a death that I watched in California. The man's name was Bradshaw Perkins Jr. He was 89 years old. He had prostate cancer. And I was with him over the course of, of really a day as he died with his doctor by his side. And in that chapter, I really look at the state of legislation in the United States. I look at how it works and and we can get into this if you want to, but there's just a lot of problems with the execution of the, it's maybe a bad word, with the um, delivery of aid and dying in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in, in the course of that research, I, I realized, I mean, obviously, most people in the country live in a place where assisted death is not legal, but also even in the places where it is legal, a lot of people don't qualify who think they should or who we might assume would. Um, The laws are really narrowly defined. 
to receive an assisted death in the United States, you have to be terminally ill with six months or less to live in the opinion of two doctors. You have to be of sound mind. The law doesn't apply to people who have chronic illnesses or less predictable illnesses like multiple sclerosis. It doesn't apply to people who have dementia. So I was aware of these limitations and then I knew I wanted to explore them. So the other chapters of the book are sort of thematic. So in the second chapter, I follow a woman who ended up taking her life because she was old and had no interest in growing older. A chapter looks at a younger woman with multiple sclerosis, so a chronic illness, who who says she doesn't want to end up severely restricted in her physical mobility. Mm-hmm. I follow a woman who also took her life who had dementia in early stages and didn't want the disease to progress. I follow a young man who took his life because of mental illness. And then in the last chapter, I asked some questions about whether we should have entry criteria for assisted death at all. And if we do have entry criteria, who who should decide it and what it should look like. So those were sort of the big thematic points I wanted to look at. And in each case, I really follow one person. And as I sort of just said, in three cases, I knew that people were going to end their lives before they did. I generally knew when and how, and I did not intervene. And I followed them through that process. I want to get to that because that journalistically, that's one of the most fascinating parts of this whole book. But just to stay on how you found the people, did you Mm -hmm. feel like you had the thematic ideas in your head and you, you know, for lack of a better word, like cast the book, like you, you said, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to find someone who has more of a physical disability and is younger. I want to look for that person. And then how did you do that? Actually go about that. Okay, I'm going to write my second book that way, I have promised myself. (laughs) But no, actually, you know, now when I read the book, the structure sort of seems obvious and there's a real progression between the chapters. And I wish I could say that was wholly by design, but the book didn't really cohere for me until I was fairly late in the process. I cast a really wide net. I spoke to a lot of people. I followed a lot of people for a long time and... Through that process, I was able to identify the areas that I I wanted to focus on. I don't think I would have been able to even pick these broad themes right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so who I picked, I mean, that depended on a lot of things. You know, who I found compelling as a character, sure. What condition they were dealing with, sure. But also, you know, I, I felt like I had to be quite careful about who I was speaking to and in what context. So in part, who I picked, it depended on how open people around them were to speaking to me. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. 
Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing because like who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. The Ethical dilemmas, like journalistically and just as a human being, seem very intense to me. How did you confront the idea of intervention versus non-intervention? I mean, that's a classic Mm -hmm. journalistic question that comes up for war photographers or, you know, people who have a chance to intervene in some situation to save someone's life. And you're interviewing people who are telling you, I am going to take my own life, but it's a particular circumstance when they've decided to do that. And so did you make a sort of steadfast rule from the beginning? This is how I'm going Mm. to deal with this? Or how did you confront that part of it? No, I would say is, is the short answer. I really felt like I had to kind of make up the ethics of this as I went along and define my own boundaries. And I think that's simply because I don't feel like a lot of other people or, or really anyone that I could find covered the subject in the same way. So, I mean, I started by thinking about suicide, right? We have some rules, air quotes, prohibitions that are widely accepted when it comes to reporting on suicide. And, and we can get into, I, I guess, the validity and, and utility of those rules. But, you know, generally, reporters don't report on suicide. If they do, they don't give a lot of detail. So they wouldn't go into detail on the means of suicide and details around the actual act. So I knew that. But I also knew that this was, you know, this was fundamentally different. The people who I met, they kind of didn't fit the classic sort of suicide model to me. To be clear, most suicides are what you might call despair suicides. They are suicides that come out of mental illness or impulse. But this felt different to me, you know, going back to the man I mentioned, you know, he was 89 years old, he was sick, he was going to die soon. Anyway, he had his doctor's approval, he was doing something that was legal, that felt very obvious to me, okay, I can report on that. But as I went on, things became more complicated Mm -hmm. and more ethically 
tangled. And the difference between kind of what I in the book call rational suicide and suicide, suicide, despair, suicide became less clear. And there were times where I, where I asked myself, you know, what is the difference? Is it only that the person tells me there's a difference? You know, is there actually no difference at all? It's just that this older woman is insisting to me that she is somehow more rational or more thoughtful or more purposeful than someone who takes her life on impulse. And I don't think there are clear answers to that. And I, I, I'm looking forward to people disagreeing with me. I felt uncertain at a lot of points in this reporting. And there was there was one person who I cut off contact with. Um, yeah, let's talk about that because that he was that was an interesting case, partly because where it became so mind-bending for me was you could kind of get your head around the physical you know mm. the physical aspects of it although there's a lot of complications in there when it comes yeah. to disability and questions like that but then when it gets to someone who is saying i have a mental illness that's incurable yeah. that i've tried everything and then they are proposing that they want to have an assisted death or take their own life that seemed mm -hmm. It's just very difficult to try to figure out where would that line be. And this yeah. guy seemed to be a, just a difficult case in, inside that. Yeah. I mean, all of the cases were complicated. And to be clear, even the idea of a line for me is problematic. I mean, who am I to draw a line? Who am I to decide this person seems rational enough or even worse, this person's reasons seem legitimate enough. I would do the same. And so sure, I'll report on it. I mean, I was aware the whole time that I was in no real position to judge the justification behind a decision like this. But um, yes, in a later chapter in the book, I follow a young man in his 20s named Adam Meyer Clayton. He got some attention in the Canadian media a couple of years ago. He was campaigning for Canada's aid in dying law, which covers the whole country, to include people who were not just physically ill, but who had mental illnesses as well. Um, he had a history of obsessive compulsive disorder and depression and severe anxiety. He was receiving a lot of treatment. So he was kind of campaigning for this law to be expanded and at the same time taking actions to prepare for his own death. In his case, that involved getting a hold of some veterinary drugs from the internet. And I talked with Adam on and off for a while, but at some point I just realized that he was completely opaque to me. I couldn't understand, you know, he was campaigning for this lot of change, but he just kept telling everyone he was going to take his life. And I mean, he used much more graphic language than that. I mean, I put in the book, he would tell me, I'm going to jump from a building and turn myself into an Adam pizza. That was one of the things mm -hmm. he kept saying. And I didn't know what he wanted. I didn't understand what he was doing. I had a sense that he was sort of choreographing a story and that I was playing the role he wanted me to. And that this in turn was kind of folding back and influencing his behavior. I was the journalist following him like he wanted me to. And I felt uncomfortable and I felt very scared. I write in the book that I realized it was the Adam show and it was kind of out of my control. And so I stopped contact with him. He did end up taking his life. 
And at that point, I resumed contact with his parents. But yeah, that was the one time I pulled back. And even that was complicated because, you know, he was vocal about his intentions. He told his parents, he told Facebook, (laughs) you know, I was able to speak to his doctors and his therapists. Um, He told them all. And so, you know, I did have to ask myself, why wasn't I following the story? Why was I so scared? But, But I was just too frightened to continue. And so I stopped. Frightened of what? What was at the heart of it? I don't even think I've figured it out now. And I think you can see that in the book. I mean, I'm, I'm unclear. I'm, I'm uncertain about a lot of things, but I felt like he wanted the media attention and I was giving it to him. And there was something about that relationship that felt wrong to me. But basically all of the reporting I did with Adam felt sort of confused. You know, at the beginning, and I write about this in the book too, but at the beginning, you know, I met him and we had this one conversation and he said, yes, I'd like to continue speaking to you. And I said, I asked him if he would put me in touch with his parents because I wanted to ask them, given his mental health history, I wanted to ask them whether they were comfortable with me talking to their son. And I spoke to his father who said, yeah, you know, he's whatever he was at the time, 26 years old, he's his own man. And and sure, if he wants to talk to you, go ahead. And I felt sort of reassured by that. But then also I was frustrated by myself. I mean, I felt Advocates have worked so hard to destigmatize mental illness, to make the obvious case that just because someone is depressed or anxious or dealing with another kind of mental illness, I mean, these people are still able to make decisions for themselves. And so had I done the right thing, speaking to Adam's dad, or had I actually kind of belittled and infantilized a 26-year-old man who was just trying to make his own decisions. I don't know if if I was right to do that or not. There are so many questions like that in the book where it feels like, at least in my head, I kind of try to settle on some, okay, here's how I feel morally about this question. And then you turn a corner and there's just another, there's just another Mm -hmm. question just beyond it. I mean, even the terminology, like what you call these things is almost infused with how you feel about it. And there are all these different Mm. terms. And how did you grapple with that because I feel like the pressure is so strong oftentimes to try to write your way through that, to try to get to some end point where people want to know, okay, well, what's the answer? Like, what should it be? Yeah, the language is complicated. It's sort of what language someone uses is a quick clue when it comes to their political views. So if you're looking at legal physician-assisted death, I mean, some people call it physician-assisted death. Advocates prefer medical aid in dying or maid, and they really hate the word suicide. I mean, they describe physician-assisted death as just being something completely different from a suicide. If you see an article where someone writes about physician-assisted suicide, it it probably means that they oppose this kind of legislation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for me... It got more complicated when I was speaking to people who weren't receiving help from a doctor. I mean, there aren't rules. I had to just figure out what language felt right. To me, sometimes suicide did feel right, and I wasn't afraid to use the word. But, you know, people have their own words. They talk about self-death or exiting. They talk about rational suicide a subcategory old age rational suicide for someone who doesn't want to be old. So some of my language, I I guess, is a little flexible. 
you write a bit about how under these various laws in different places, oftentimes there's a doctor or a volunteer from an organization that's, that is assisting someone there, the assisted mm. part of it. But they have these very prescribed rules about how if it's a situation where the person has to drink something, they have to drink it themselves. They can't be seen to have yeah. helped them. But were there also similar things for you, like that you had to be careful that you, let's say, if you're asking someone over and over again a certain question, I'm not saying you did this, but like, when are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? That you mm. you are in fact influencing when they might want to do that. Yeah, I never asked that. Yeah, I, I, that was a bad example because I would not <laughs> think that would be the thing you yeah. would ask. But, but I think, I mean, I, I probably repeated this so much that people just got sick of it. But I said often, I have no stake in how your story ends. I said, I'm writing a book about people who are considering assisted death. I'm interested in the process. I don't expect any outcome. So I'd make that point clear. I would also say, I'm grateful to you for speaking to me. If you decide that you want to stop this conversation, at any point now or, or in the future, you know, you can, you can tell me you don't want to talk anymore. Or if you just want to stop answering my emails on phone calls, you can do that. I mean, you don't have to keep answering. And I had people who, who did, and I, you know, I, I'd maybe try once or twice to make sure they weren't just busy, but then I'd leave them alone. So I was careful in how I framed the story. And even in one of the chapters, as I mentioned, I write about it, a young woman um, in her thirties who has multiple sclerosis, you know, we've talked on and off for years, Maya and I, it took a couple of years before I could get her father on the phone. It was something I, you know, he was someone I really wanted to speak to. And our first conversation was by phone and it was very brief. And one of the things he said to me is he said, I don't want my daughter to kill herself to give you a good ending for your book. And I, he said, I don't want her to be a martyr for anyone's cause. And I said, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, it's a risk, but uh, yeah, I put that in the book too. Yeah, because, was... you know, I, I, I tried to show the whole process. I think I really realized, I didn't know this at the beginning, but it became clear to me as I went that I, because these questions are so complicated, I needed to bring the reader along with me. And especially because as you say, you know, some people finish this book and feel confused and I feel confused. It's one of the reasons I liked writing it so much because I felt like I could work really hard at trying to get to an answer and still not. And that, I mean, there aren't that many subjects I think where that would be the case. Yeah. Especially where the, the story you think, you know, that you've heard that's usually about a law that passed and who was for it yeah. and who was against it. And then you read the aspects of the law, you know, if you have six months to live and it can all make sort of make sense to you. And it's like, it gets more interesting, the more subtle it gets, Yeah. but that's dicey terrain as a reporter. Yeah. I have this joke. So there's, I guess you need to fall back on dark humor sometimes here, but you know, there's this clinic in Switzerland called Dignitas where people can go and receive an assisted death if they live in a place that doesn't allow it. And the clinic's pretty popular it brings what the Swiss call suicide tourism to the country. But, you know, I write in the book, there is this genre of documentary film that is like grandpa goes to Dignitas. And it's all sort of the same. And it starts with, you know, this very sick, frail older person and this, this choice and the family's having to come around to it. But 
than they do. And then someone accompanies grandpa to Switzerland and there's this cold, strange, foreign death, um, you know, in a clinic outside Zurich. But I didn't want to do that. So there's another side of the source relationship that I also wanted to ask about, which is in doing any longer work, whether it's magazine work or books in particular, and you're spending a great deal of time with someone or speaking with someone, you're talking to their family members, you're really trying to learn who they are and be able to convey that. You know, I've had subjects who have then subsequently died after that, and it can be a very upsetting experience. Like you've become, mm. if not friends with them, you've become sort of intimately acquainted with them. But this is even a level beyond that where the whole time you're developing that relationship, you know that there's a good chance that they will die at the end. And mm. I'm curious how you confronted that just from your own emotional perspective of sort of getting to know people very intimately that you know that their time is potentially limited in this very specific way. Yeah, I guess that relationship played out in different ways. I mean, the man whose death I watched, we didn't know each other very well or for very long. It was still a very intense experience. <laughs> you know, I still needed a couple days off after because I, I, I don't think I knew what death looked like and now I do. But I think as I reported the piece, I it was really important to me that I acted in a professional manner just because we're talking about suicide and death and loss doesn't mean I should act emotional or put any of my own issues or anxieties on the person I was speaking to. That was really important. But afterwards, I mean, yeah, it was sad. There was a woman I spent a lot of time with named Deborah, who um, she had young onset dementia in early stages and yeah, we spent a lot of time together, both on the phone, but also me in, in Oregon at her home. And all along, I wasn't really sure she'd do it. I mean, I think that was actually, it actually happened a few times. I, I just thought someone would end up staying alive for some reason, even though they kept telling me they would die and they would take their life. I, I, I didn't, it's not that I didn't believe them. I just kind of didn't think it would happen. And, and then it did happen with her. And yeah, I mean, it was sad. I, I actually liked her a lot. Um, we spoke on the phone for an hour just before she took her life. And I mean, she had dementia. So like a lot of our conversations, it was really meandering and we jumped all over the place and she'd kind of lose her train of thought. But, you know, she she hadn't asked me very much about myself until that point. And then we're kind of at the literal 11th hour and she was asking me, you know, was I married and did I have kids and did I have a cat? and how much did I pay for my rent in Brooklyn? And oh my God, wasn't I, how could I pay this much? And like, she can't stop thinking about it. She's going to keep thinking about how absurd that rent is. And, and, and that was, you know, that was obviously a really hard conversation to have, but still I was a journalist. So still it's like, you know, have you eaten? <laughs> what kind of yogurt did you have? Coconut. Did you like it? You know, it's this like ridiculous narrative journalism questions that I still had to ask lest I, you know, be swept up in the moment. And was there ever any part of you that sort of thought, if I make a connection with this person, they might not do it? Because some of the people, they didn't have close family or their closest family mm. were cousins they didn't talk to and they didn't have kids or, and did you ever have a feeling like, wow, what I say to this person could change the course of their decision. Actually, never. And 
I think it might just be the people I spoke to. Mm -hmm. Another observation I had while writing this book and also working on other projects, when someone is sick or dying and suffering, I think they can become, selfish is the wrong word because it's negative, but really focused on themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's something I, I notice all the time. Usually on an assignment, if I'm asking questions, people have questions about me, about my work and my job. When someone's really sick or they're dying, they don't ask those questions that much. They're busy. And so part of it is that I, I don't think they actually felt as close to me necessarily as I felt towards them. So I want to go back a little bit and talk about how you came to do this work. And obviously you have mm -hmm. other experiences of interviewing people who are sick and dying in other, other contexts. And I want to start all the way back at the beginning. You are not American, you're Canadian, correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, you grew up in Toronto, but I don't really know the circumstances of how you grew up. Did you, were you a person who pursued journalism from a young age? I felt like I was very behind at the time, but I actually probably started when I was like 19. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, like many people who lack imagination, who study the humanities, I took the LSATs and thought about law school. <laughs> but I ended up working a summer internship in journalism because I was sort of interested and really liked it. And after undergrad, I, I did a, a fellowship at a Canadian magazine called McLean's, where I was sort of a general assignment reporter. I still actually wasn't convinced in my early 20s. A part of me thought I would be a good historian, <laughs> and I ended up going to graduate school for two years in history in huh. England. I have a probably the most useless sounding degree in the world, which is a master's of philosophy in history. Um, <laughs> and, you know, flirted with the idea of doing a PhD, but... Ultimately, I think I was poorly suited to that work. And so I ended up, I stayed in London, but I decided it was all in for journalism and I haven't done anything else since. And when I was looking back at your earlier work, the McLean's work, you were a kind of roving correspondent. I think you described yourself as a roving European correspondent. And how did that work? You know, I don't know that that position still exists at a lot of places, no. but it's it was sort of like the old, like, news magazine, like you were covering yeah. Eastern Europe, you were covering all kinds of stories. I mean, I think it, a couple of things came together. I would never have been sent to England by the magazine, uh -huh. but I was already there. I'd written for them before they knew me. And so I was able to get into a kind of routine with them where I would cover events in Europe. I went to Rome when Pope Benedict resigned and I went to Geneva when the Higgs boson was, I don't know, discovered, announced, and I covered the Euromaidan revolution in Ukraine for them. So I was just incredibly lucky. I did some silly pieces too. I mean, I, I stood outside a hospital in London for basically 48 hours while the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton, gave birth to her first son. So it wasn't, you know, all sort of like hard hitting. <laughs> there was a fair amount of fluff in there too. I gave the people what they wanted. I mean, it does sound like a lot of fun though. It was fun. <laughs> the Kate Middleton story lasts, but I, I actually wrote a piece about when Kate and William got married, I wrote a piece about 
other couples who were getting married the same day in Britain and how they felt about it, <laughs> which I think was probably a professional low point, you know, but it was, I mean, it was a lot of fun and I was just so lucky. I mean, I worked all the time and I, I was still learning a lot. I had to teach myself a lot, but no, I was very lucky. And then how did you get into doing documentary? Like, well, how did you make that transition? It's another sort of ridiculous story, but McLean's, the Canadian magazine, sent me to Ukraine to cover this revolution that was happening, the Euromaidan revolution, and I guess 2015, 14, 15. The center of Kiev was basically under siege. And this whole kind of central square, this whole Maidan, it's called, was barricaded. There were militia and semi-army groups that had filled the square that were opposed to the government. And inside of that square, there was one hotel. So a lot of the foreign journalists covering the events were at that one hotel. And at that hotel, I met some guys who were from Vice. (laughs) And they told me that they were starting this thing called Vice News, and it was going to be, they were going to be real journalists, and it was going to be a serious operation. And you know, we kind of got along and they said, did I want to come and meet their boss in London when I was back? And I think by the time I started, Vice News had just launched and there was this ragtag team in, in the London Bureau, maybe 10 people in total. And I had no experience in documentary production. And I guess the trade-off was we're going to pay you really poorly and <laughs> we're going to teach you how to do this other thing. And I, I mean, I wasn't sure I wanted the job. I, I went back and forth. I had this idea that I should be a writer and I shouldn't go into film. But this was kind of during the great pivot to video of 2014, 2015. And I remember I asked my dad for advice and he said, you got to go with the market. Like The market's <laughs> pointing you towards video, like but you should learn how to do this. And so, yeah, it was advice for a few years. And what did you have to learn that you didn't know from your other reporting? I think everything. I mean, I think really at the beginning, nobody wanted to work with me because I was so inexperienced. I remember a, an assistant producer, you know, who's in her early 20s saying to me in this sort of exasperated way, a documentary film is made up of scenes and every scene has one point and they have to connect to each other. So I, I think a lot of writers kind of look down on <laughs> video production or at least assume that it's sort of obvious and easy. I had to learn a lot. I found it a really difficult adjustment. Um, I think it helped my writing a lot, actually, because I had to learn to think a lot more visually I did start to think of things in terms of scenes in a way that I hadn't really before. Mm -hmm. I think in video, a friend once described video reporting to me as sort of, you have to kind of flirt with people. She said, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but you have to kind of act in a certain way to draw out emotion. You're a lot more focused on not what someone's saying, but kind of how they're saying it. And I think that really helped me later on. I was able to be more sort of emotionally connected during interviews. And I was still learning how to be a reporter, really. And, you know, Vice News was in its infancy. And so I had a lot of responsibility early on. I mean, I went to Paris and covered the terror attacks there. I covered military exercises in Lithuania. I went back to East Ukraine and reported on the refugee situation there. And, I mean, all sorts of huge stories. Yeah. From Vice, you also then, you were working for NBC and this documentary part of NBC left field. Yeah. And 
And those films are, they're really good. They're these really good short Thank films. You. And it made me wonder when you say emotionally connecting with the subjects, also there's a certain kind of on-camera presence. Did that come naturally to you? Or were you sort of like, I watch my tape and then say like, you know what? I should not be <laughs> nodding excessively right there. I should mm. be, is it that at that level that you tried to develop the person who was going to be on camera? I mean, the nodding and the resting face, I think you have to be very aware of. <laughs> I think it can get very unattractive very quickly if you're not sort of aware of where each muscle in your face is at any given moment. But I started the on-camera work at Vice, not at the beginning, um, but kind of halfway through. I mean, if I'm honest, probably part of me thought it would be cool to be on camera. And I still sort of fancied myself like a Christian Amanpour of my generation and you know, I, I thought like maybe I'd kind of sparkle on camera, which I, I think I definitely did not. But there was also a, a part of it at Vice, frankly, which was, you know, I don't go on camera. Someone else is going to go on camera. And if I've done all this work and then some guy gets to go on camera instead of me, it starts to feel a little funny. And like say um, you're reporting out loud. Yeah. So I did both. Yeah. I was behind the scenes and then in front of camera too. But I'm too much of a control freak. I couldn't really just hand over interviews to people. So I learned as much as I could about the on-camera stuff and then continued with that at NBC. Yeah. What happened to Left Field? It was, the word they used was sunsetted. I was sunsetted. I think, you know, I don't think this is unique to NBC. I think a lot of, you know, the big networks, they're struggling. They're trying to figure out how to attract another generation of viewers um, it was a really fun experience to to be able to work on documentaries in a for an outlet that was so well resourced. But I think ultimately, you know, I'd make these sort of like nuanced, ethically tortured little fifteen minute documentary films, and that's just fundamentally not what the company was interested in. <laughs> so you so you had the book the whole time, basically, uh, kind of mm-hmm. like going in the background, and then. You returned to writing, and I do want to talk about this California Sunday story. So you did one that was, it appears in some form in the book, that it is about assisted death. But then the other one is from last year, and it's about the nursing home in Washington that was sort of one of the early epicenters of COVID. And this type of story particularly fascinates me because I, it's the kind of story that I never think to do. And then when I read it, I think, oh, of course, like that's genius. That's what you should do. But I'm wondering, when did it occur to you? Like at what point in this being a national news story that there was an outbreak there? It was one of the first outbreaks with a lot of people dying and a lot of news attention to it. At what point did you say, okay, I'm going to go back there and focus in on that? I actually didn't. (laughs) It was, I have to give full credit to my editor, Kit Ratchless. Oh, at California Sunday, RIP, the magazine has since shut down. But he called me in in May, so really two months after the nursing home outbreak, and said that he was interested in me doing a piece on the outbreak if I could find one. And we agreed, you know, sure, it seems interesting enough, I'll write 4,500 words. This ended up being, you know, a 16,000 word story about this nursing home and the American nursing home and regulation of nursing homes. Um, And when you approached people at the nursing home, did you find that it was at a point where people were, I mean, some of the sources you have are extraordinary, that they were sort of mm -hmm. ready to open back up after 
normally when people get so much attention like that, they just close down eventually. They've got Good Morning America or whatever coming after them. Yeah. So in what state did you find your, your sources when you went there? So by the time I started my story, news outlets had covered the outbreak in Kirkland. The New York Times had written a story that kind of got up some of the things that happened there. When I started, I knew that what I wanted to do was describe what it felt like to be inside the facility. And specifically, I was interested in the perspective of the residents because I had been reading so much about this nursing home outbreak and other nursing home outbreaks. And none of the stories actually gave me a feel for how the people inside the facilities felt, in part because I think it, you know, the facilities were under lockdown, it was difficult to get access. But I also think that a lot of times when the subject of a story is an elderly person, they're not even necessarily asked. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of obsessed with this idea. And if I can make a digression, a small digression. So when I was in grad school, I worked with this historian and he was writing a book or he'd written a book about World War II from the perspective of children. And I don't remember very much from grad school, but I remember him telling me, you know, that as he was writing, he really had to remind himself, you know, these people, these children experienced World War II from like three or four feet off the ground. And what did that change? What could they see? You know, he told me that children, people who were children during World War II have really strong memories of sounds more than adults do. Mm. And so I remembered that and I really brought that to the nursing home reporting. And I, I started thinking, okay, so these residents are in bed in their rooms. What do they know? What are they hearing? Are the doors open or closed? Is the room close to the nurse's station? Can they hear nurses kind of gossiping in the hallways? Can they hear anything at all or have the batteries in their hearing aids expired? And so they're effectively just in their own minds. Are they in a room that looks out onto the parking lot, in which case they can see ambulances coming and going? Or are they looking out on the back courtyard, in which case they might not know anything? If they're lying in bed, can they see the TV? Is it on? Do they have the remote? Do they like to watch the news? In which case they could be watching CNN and CNN is outside the nursing home yeah. or is turned to like the discovery channel and they have no idea what's going on. I, I became just like obsessed with trying to understand that experience. And part of that, that was really important to me. I knew that more than 50% of people who live in nursing homes have dementia or some form of cognitive impairment. I think that's actually often unsaid in these nursing home mm -hmm. articles. I mean, a lot of people who live in nursing homes have dementia. That's why they're there. And I wanted to know what it was like for them too. I mean, when things are hard to understand in the best of times, what's it like during a pandemic? And again, I became sort of obsessed with imagining myself into that experience. I think to the ethical limits of my imagination and I made a real effort and in fact did interview residents who have dementia. What was that experience like interviewing them? So, you know, I have a piece coming out soon that also deals with this. My feeling, kind of like my philosophical feeling is that in an effort to protect vulnerable people, like people who have dementia, we often don't ask them any questions. And I don't think that's good enough in Cases where people have quite an early stage dementia, mild dementia, I can talk to them. I mean, the conversations might not always be completely fluid, but I can have them. If someone has more moderate dementia, I still try. So 
for the nursing home story, at one point I interviewed a woman's two children at length several times. I interviewed one of the women's caregivers, and then I interviewed the woman for 10 or 15 minutes. It wasn't a long conversation. I mean, most of what we talked about was she had a bed that was by the window and she felt like it was too hot when the sun was shining on her and she was uncomfortable. And we talked a lot about that and that still gave me a sense for what she was understanding. That I think the interviews, you have to be careful. And I think, you know, I try to take lessons from geriatricians who I've interviewed. So for instance, you know, I interviewed someone recently who has moderate dementia about COVID. I didn't call him and say, you know, hey, are you worried about this pandemic that's sweeping through your nursing home? I said, like, you know, hey, have you have you heard anything about this virus? Or, uh, no, you haven't. Okay, what's it like at the nursing home today? Is there a lot going on? There's not. It's quiet. Why do you think it's quiet? How come? You know, was it always quiet? Was it more quiet? <laughs> so there are ways to do it. And, you know, I, I just started calling family members and They connected me sometimes to residents who lived inside the nursing home. So that was really where I started. I interviewed a couple of dozen family members and residents. And then slowly other people started opening up. It was very, very hard to get access to the nursing home, partly because, I mean, they're busy and fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But also because they um, were being sued. And so everything was sort of shut down. It took nearly three months before the spokesperson who was hired by the nursing home agreed to speak with me. And I suspect he regretted the conversation because he called me like at night, I think, in the evening. I think he was driving home from work Mm. and he sort of monologued for an hour or an hour and a half and made all sorts of promises for material he was going to get me and never called me again. (laughs) Um, Nurses, that took a while, too. I mean, in the first draft of the story, I didn't have a nurse main character as I did in the final draft because I didn't have one. Oh, Um, wow. She was amazing. Yeah. I spoke to a couple of staff members, nursing staff and administrative staff on background or not for attribution. But eventually I did find this one nurse who was willing to speak. I think it was very brave of her because she was still working for the company. And when you, you expanded it into looking at the whole, the nursing home industry, the corporate conglomerates, the way it plays out with Medicare and Medicaid and the health system. A thing that occurred to me that I don't know, you can tell me if this is true or not. Is there some way in which being Canadian allowed you to like look at this issue that probably, I mean, I'm sure there's been good investigative reporting about this that I just haven't read, but something that we look at all the time and just get accustomed to that you would look at and say, wait a minute, this makes no sense. Yeah, I can actually... Up the ante. I'm Canadian and I'm Austrian. Ah. So I have an EU passport too. So there are a lot of countries that would have to give me <laughs> free health care at a moment's notice. But uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think when I first moved to the United States, you know, I hadn't really covered like healthcare. I don't see myself a healthcare reporter, but yeah, I was, I mean, I'm Canadian. I was shocked and appalled by everything I learned. And I realized that so much of healthcare reporting in the US is really about income inequality and access to resources. And, and yeah, I think that kind of horror and naivety <laughs> helped me because I, I could kind of question things at every stage. So yeah, I, a few strands emerged. I, I realized I needed to tell the story of what happened at the nursing home. 
And I, I told that story through from the perspective of two women. But I also wanted to tell the story of American for-profit nursing homes. And I also wanted to tell the story of deregulation. And I wanted there to be a strand in the story that implicated all of us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And maybe that sounds cheesy, but that kind of got at this broader cultural abdication. We've just really forgotten about, you know, millions of older vulnerable people and allowed them to in many cases, be placed half willingly or unwillingly into institutions that are grossly underregulated. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to tell that story too. And I was lucky because my editor, um, Kit Ratchless, who was wonderful, I don't think there are that many people who would have said yes to a 16,000 word story on nursing homes. And he believed me when I kept saying that the story's bigger, the story's bigger, the story's bigger. And I was lucky to get to publish it in California someday. That aspect of it, I feel like that's part of the book too, this idea that there is a population of people going through something that are never really asked how they feel about it. I mean, even through a year of the pandemic, you could read a thousand stories about nursing homes that have no quotes in them from people inside the nursing homes, you know? Yeah. Um, And I wondered when I read both the book and that article, is there something in your life that you feel like led you to have that curiosity to go do that, to say, okay, actually, I don't want to just write about this. I want to Mm. find out how these people feel about it. I mean, probably there's some psychological issues that I could unpack. I mean, I've always been someone who thinks about death and aging and maybe because I'm afraid I hyper-focus on it and report on it. But actually, I, I... I'm honestly just so surprised there hasn't been more coverage. I mean, I make the comparison sometimes to education. Look at a newspaper like the New York Times. They've got multiple journalists covering primary, secondary education, as they should. I mean, a lot of government money goes into those institutions. They're really important. You know, billions of dollars of government money goes to the nursing home industry every year. And nobody has a nursing home correspondent like Nobody has an assisted living correspondent. I don't even think New York Times has an aging correspondent. That's wild to me. You know, as a journalist, someone tells me, oh, there's an industry. It's uh, hugely underregulated. It's getting billions of dollars a year. It is not super accountable for that money. It's like, who wouldn't want to cover that? (laughs) So I think that's part of it. I think also just the industry, the media industry, we're we're very much working on it, but we're we're trying to cover... uh, diverse range of issues and to consider different communities in our reporting, different backgrounds. I don't know that advanced age has kind of been part of that. I mean, I think, you know, I met this, when I first started reporting on nursing homes, I met this man in California and I'll give him a shout out because I think he's great. His name is Tony Chickatel and he's a elder rights lawyer. And I had interviewed him about this thing to do with nursing homes and Medicaid funding. And at the end of the interview, I said, like, you know, he's probably in his 40s, the young guy. I said, what made you want to do this kind of law? Seems strange to me. And he said, when I was younger, I was really inspired by the civil rights movement and, you know, the roles that lawyers played in helping African-Americans, you know, achieve a more full set of legal rights. And he said, I realized in law school that, you know, there were all these old people whose rights were being violated all the time and no one was fighting for them. And, you know, I wanted, I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. So I chose this and I just, I thought that was really nice and, and true. 
I mean, most people in nursing homes can't take to the streets and march on Washington. Um, it's really easy to forget them. And has reporting on those issues formed in your mind a feeling of how you want to age and you want to die? Is that something you, have you drawn your lessons from it? I mean, with respect to the book, people, you know, have asked me what whether I would choose an assisted death. I don't know that I would. If I had to bet money, I would say that I wouldn't. I think I'm the type of person that will cling on to the bitter end. <laughs> but um, what a sad note to end on. But honestly, a lot of my reporting has made me more pessimistic. You know, that's just because I meet all these experts and all these doctors who have seen these problems coming for decades and have been shouting into the abyss and no one's listened. It's possible. I mean, I think it's possible that COVID has made us more aware of how places like nursing homes work, how socially isolated older people um, suffer. So maybe there'll be a change. We'll see. The optimistic thing is, I think the book is is fantastic. And I think it'll get people who read it thinking about things that they've probably never thought about. So thank you so much for doing this. And I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. That is it for this week's long form podcast. Thanks to my guest, Katie Englehart. Her book is called The Inevitable Dispatches on the Right to Die. Uh, you should go check it out. It's an amazing book. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. My other co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Susan Peterson. And our sponsor, as always, is MailChimp. Thank you, MailChimp. And we'll see you all next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.